For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about Revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we, we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. My job can be amazing. I get to do crazy things bringing these stories to you. On the third weekend in November, I joined the Australian model and Vogue Om cover star, Jared Scott, and the NGO he's an ambassador for. It's called Citizens of the Great Barrier Reef, on a trip up north to the ocean off Cairns in Queensland. Why? To witness the annual coral spawning. It's been described as underwater fireworks, and it takes place in November or December every year when the temperature and the moon's position align. And what happens is the corals, en masse simultaneously release eggs and sperm, spawn into the water, and these bundles then rise slowly to the surface where the fertilisation process begins. And the fertilised eggs will settle on the ocean floor, hopefully, eventually, developing into new corals. Now, have a think about what you've heard about the situation with Australia's Great Barrier Reef. It's in trouble, right? Climate change is stressing it out, and two consecutive major bleaching events in 2016 and 17, when the water stayed too hot for too long, had terrible impact. The headlines globally were full of stories about this World Heritage wonder being dead. But when you visit, you find that the story is not so clear-cut. The reef is enormous, for starters, and it's doing better in some places than others. There's still plenty of tourism up there, and still loads of beauty and biodiversity. Some parts are definitely more damaged than others, but the outlook is patchy, and two years later, new corals are growing up all over the place. The Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority Outlook Report acknowledges that climate change is the most pervasive and persistent threat to the reef. Thermal extremes can cause mass mortality of corals. It also flags the effects from sea level rise and ocean acidification that are slowly increasing. And then there's things like crown of thorns starfish outbreaks and extreme weather, so cyclones, that also threaten reef health. In this context, the spawning is even more important. It represents life, regeneration and hope. So I went snorkelling in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night, to see it. And I didn't just have one supermodel to contend with, I had two. Laura Wells, my marine biologist model mate and the star of the very first episode of Series 1 of the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, was there too. We got to hang out with citizens of the Great Barrier Reef's founder, Andy Ridley, who actually also founded Earth Hour. He's a legend. You'll get to meet him in a moment. And a bunch of coral scientists from different universities and organisations. We found out what's being done to help build resilience on the reef, which means its capacity to absorb disturbance and retain essentially the same structure, function and identity. I learned about all this stuff. Coral gardening. Have you heard of that? Me neither. You will in a minute. (laughs) I mentioned before that the reef is so big. I also learnt that most of it hasn't been surveyed up close, so we're relying on satellite images to check its health. But most importantly, I learnt that a lot of people are very interested in conserving this world heritage wonder and found out about some of the work that they're doing to make that happen. I do recommend you go back and listen to episode 17 with climate scientist Tim Flannery. We recorded that one on Heron Island, which is a bit further south on the reef, two years ago. And that gives another perspective. Can you help me spread the word? I'm so grateful when you share on social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs Press. And we have a Wardrobe Crisis Facebook page. It also really helps if you can rate and review wherever you listen. But now... Let's start with Laura Wells to give us some coral context. Corals, are they an animal or a plant? Well, actually, they're a very complex animal and a vegetable 
and a mineral all wrapped up into one cute little package. They're known as anthozoans. It's a word derived from Greek and it means flower and animal, which describes the appearance of the polyp of a coral. It has tentacles that surround a mouth and come out at nighttime to feed on unlucky passers-by. The polyps lay down calcium carbonate, which is the hard surface that we know of hard corals. That's something that you would normally see on the Great Barrier Reef. And they live in a symbiotic relationship with a single-celled algae. It's a dinoflagellate known as a zooxanthellae. Now, the zooxanthellae, they help to provide nutrients through photosynthesis to the coral polyps, but they also give corals their beautiful colours. So when you're looking at a meadow or a field of beautiful corals, especially like that on the Great Barrier Reef, you're actually looking at a meadow of captive zooxanthellae. And that zooxanthellae, we want it to remain captive forever. No parole period. That will keep our corals safe and healthy well into the future. But corals are more than just a tale of kaleidoscopic colours. They are complex ecosystems and their complexity is matched by their importance. We need corals to survive. If we don't, our oceans will be unhealthy and so will we. This is Andy Ridley and Jared Scott before we sailed out from Cairns. Jared, Andy, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. Good morning. Nice to be here. Andy, you're CEO of this organisation called Citizens of the Great Barrier Reef. What does it actually do? So Citizens is a very different type of conservation organisation. It's basically a network of individuals and organisations across the Great Barrier Reef that are trying to up the ante in the protection of this incredible place and uh, involve as many people both here and around the world in doing that. The reef is massive. People know it's big, but it is really big. So it's 2,300 kilometres long. It's about the same size and area as Germany or um, Malaysia. So if you want to do conservation on scale on the Great Barrier Reef, you basically need everybody to help. So what we've tried to build here in a very sort of 21st century shared economy type way is an organisation that pulls in every boat that we can find. So tourism operators, researchers, um, every island operation as well. So, you know, from Heron down to um, Lady Elliot's all the way up to Lizard and try and build basically a network so that we can maximise and scale up on conservation. The reef is a it's a bucket list place for many people around the world two million tourists a year two million well three million across the whole reef but you know like i was i was born in england i dreamed when i was five years old i wanted to come to the great barrier reef and i i know there's millions and millions billions of people around the world who see this as this amazing icon obviously there's been some horrific uh, stories about it and it has you know the impact of sequential bleaching has been horrible there's been big cyclones like debbie that destroyed much of the reefs around the wit sundays jared when you talk to your friends in New York, where you live now, or people in the fashion industry in London or Milan and Paris, and you tell them about the reef, do they think it's dead? Pretty much before I get to say anything, it's like, oh, it's dead though. It's dead, right? So we've it's got quite, this... It's quite frustrating. We've got this belief globally that we've lost this icon. Mm, I think it came from a lot of circulating false media. But let's not say that there wasn't catastrophic bleaching or yeah. let's not try to downplay the magnitude of what happened in these two consecutive bleaching events that happened recently in 2016 and then 2017. This was, I'm going to use the word catastrophic, I mean it was very upsetting. In a previous episode of this podcast Tim Flannery talked about revisiting areas of the reef that he'd dived when they were pristine and finding them covered in slime where they're basically rotting after the... Yeah so, so this is the, I think this is the challenge right, so what you're trying to do because, you know, I remember being in Amsterdam, seeing a tweet that said 90% of the reef was dead. I was working a different job. And I love the reef. Like, I've, you know, I've loved it since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. There is a horrifically big issue around climate change. And it's going to get much, much worse. But to give up too early is to give up. I guarantee you the people that always talk negatively about it have never even been on the reef. And that's a big issue as well. They've never seen it for themselves. When we do read those very scary headlines, seeing that something we love has been devastated. I mean, I'm using all that language. Yeah. Dead. You know, of course, we jump on it and share it. But what you're saying is that in the water right here, that is not what you're seeing. What are you seeing then? Right. So as you mentioned, there was sequential bleaching 2016, 27. Extreme. Uh, no one's seen that before. So major mass bleaching two years in a row. 
And, you know, the cyclone, Debbie, that then hit the Whitsunders very, very big, did a lot of damage. So this is the thing, you know, the issue is there, the problem you can see it already, like you can all over the world. But what you also see is nature's resilience. And you'll see a reef today, and we're going to take it as a normal reef, and you'll see a wall on that reef, which will look amazing. It looks amazing. You'll see the top, which is covered in baby corals, new recruits, and you'll see a lagoon that's been smashed. And that's a reef, and that'll be within 100 metres. So to talk about the Great Barrier Reef is, is a nuanced conversation. It's not dead and it's not perfect. It's a mixture of different things. The challenge you really want to talk about is the outlook going forward, which is, which is not good if we carry on the way we're, we're going. Jared, you're an ambassador for citizens. Mm. My role is to voice all the things that are happening on the reef and uh, try and use my platform in the fashion industry most of it through picture, I guess, uh, trying to grab people's attention on social media. And then you have to come in with knowledge and try and engage them so they want to keep reading, uh, which sometimes can be a bit difficult because I'm known to do it as well, just keep swiping. But yeah, I, you have to be educated and know what you're talking about, especially on a topic like the reef because it's so big and there's so much happening and there's so much politics as well. It's quite involved. At the beginning, I thought, oh, I didn't really know what I was getting into until you know, a few projects later. And uh, I thought, wow, I'm, I'm in the deep end. Could you tell us your story of being scouted and then getting some pretty major jobs? Yeah, I got very lucky. In the first sort of 18 months, I'd, I'd accomplished every single thing, you know, from Givenchy to Chanel to the cover of Vogue to a fragrance for Jean-Paul Gaultier and... For such a short period of time, I got spoiled. So I now I'm, I'm cruising the waves of, of a career. Tell us about how you first got interested in environmentalism, because you were brought up in Melbourne. You weren't even by the beach. Growing up in the country, I was drawn to the ocean because it was so far away. I'd never been there, so I was curious about it. And yet now you no. have this fascination with the ocean. Where yeah. did it come from? I'm a coral enthusiast. I love fish tanks. I love aquariums. And uh, in New York, I, I don't like watching TV, so I chose to have a fish tank. I just kept learning and taught myself about how sensitive coral are and what you have to do to maintain them. And I got to the point where I wasted thousands on coral dying. And it, it's really, really, you have to be there every single day and travelling is very hard to manage the, the tank. But, but you what, know, in, in what a made three, you do it in the first place? I just love, I love coral. And I came to the, the Great Barrier Reef years ago before I had it. I'd always just love the look of coral and the colours and it's it's like a an ever-changing piece of art. You've suddenly got a bit of money in your pocket. I know you like fast cars. However, yeah. <laughs> you decided to spend that bit yeah. of money on an aquarium. I'm not into buying luxury clothing or I wear the same clothes until they're absolutely dead. But yeah, my the reef I, I, I had in my little home, I, I started seeing how difficult it was to maintain it even in a, a controlled environment and, you know, without pollution being poured in, if you don't have, you know, an automatic dose that you have to, you know, if you put too much calcium, then it's going to offset this. And then, you know, you've got to manage the, the salinity and you have a reservoir from evaporation from the lights. And the scale is so sensitive, mainly when you, you look at the, the water quality through the refractor. It's basically saying uh, the alkalinity level. So it's like acidification in the water. And that's what we were talking about yesterday. You probably listened to the scientists talking about acidification. How do you build resilience as much as possible on the reef? That means you have to do everything you possibly can. And this is like everyone on the reef has to do everything we possibly can to build resilience. That means you have to improve water quality. You have to, you have to look at ways in which you can rebuild reefs. But all of the things that we can do there are not going to combat the biggest problem, which is climate change, but they might buy time. What percentage of the reef do you think, according to the research and the data that you hear reported from scientists you work with, is damaged? I mean, I've got these stats in front of me. 89% suffers collapse. Half of it is dead. What's the real story? Yesterday we heard from four different scientists who talked about a patchiness. Yeah. So, that so none of them will have given you a percentage, right? Right. So I know that but this is the challenge oh, yeah. of the communication, they right? They can't. Yeah. Everyone wants to go, is it 50%? Is it 20%? Is it 40%? Look at one reef. Depends where you look. Right? And you'll go, okay, so that wall is amazing. Size of Germany. Right. Depends where you and, look. And, and, you know, 40% of the reef has never been surveyed. What in the do last, you mean by that? So that means from a conservation perspective, it's so big, you haven't had boats going in there. And, you know, every year there's an annual, the Australian Institute for Marine Science surveys 
a number of reefs. I think last year it was somewhere just below 50 reefs. So this is not a criticism of research. It's pointing out scale. So in the last 10 years, probably less than 5% of it has been surveyed. Isn't about 200 reefs the scientists are on? I think yeah. it's even less than that at the moment. And so, for those who don't know, which is me, how many roughly reefs are we talking about that make up the whole? Is it so thousands? So f- official number is 4,000, but yeah. we, we, you know, we were out uh, recently <laughs> and they reckon it's probably closer to 12,000. We need good communicators to tell the truth. And it's a weird position to be in. But that's the communication challenge initially with the Great Barrier Reef. The best thing that you can do is actually experience it. I was really lucky to go snorkelling with reef expert Fiona Marida. Here we are afterwards talking about what we saw and also about one of the big threats to the reef, crown of thorns starfish or cots. They're a native species, but they're spiky and poisonous to humans and they eat coral. They can reach plague proportions. According to the Park Authority, since the early 1960s, the region has experienced four destructive COTS outbreaks. But this frequency is unsustainable, particularly given the other pressures affecting the region. It can take 10 years for a reef to recover from a COTS outbreak. Now, their causes are up for debate, but agricultural fertiliser runoff is likely a factor. Here's Fiona. I am the um, Acting Director of Reef Education and Stewardship at the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority. You just took me snorkelling. I did. (laughs) (laughs) We do have a bit of noise here because we are on a pontoon. We're actually really lucky because we're staying overnight on the pontoon. We're going to sleep out here. We're going to sleep out here. But why are we sleeping out here? We're sleeping out here because... Tonight, we are fingers crossed, everything crossed, that we will actually get to see the most incredible biological phenomenon on the planet, which is the mass coral spawning. What happens is the corals queue, and they queue based on a few things. So a temperature spike that occurs in November, this time of year, and we all sort of felt it, you know, in the north, where you felt that the temperatures increased that little bit. Well, the corals did too, and they started preparing themselves. The next queue is a lunar cycle, so it's the moon the brightness of the moon and so what happens is between three to eight days after the full moon all the corals on the Great Barrier Reef and the same species of corals will spawn within the same period of time. So you've now got millions and millions of corals that are all releasing their eggs and sperm into the water column at the same time. It's absolutely fascinating to think that it's hinged on the moon. We've come out here this evening but we didn't know if it would necessarily be today because it's up to nature to decide. Absolutely and so we you know we're honing it in and with more and more information we're getting better at actually predicting when it's going to happen but again you still don't know because crazy things happen like split spawning. So there might be another a little spawning tonight and then another one and after the next lunar cycle in December. What happens then? The water fills with slime and we're going to go and swim in it. Yes. Why <laughs> would we want to do that? No, but seriously, why is this such an important moment for the reef and particularly at this time when the reef's been under stress? So this is what we keep saying. This is so critical for the reef because this is the new life. So this is on scale how you breed new life into the Great Barrier Reef. This is where all the baby corals come from for the next generation and it's actually we won't be swimming in slime what they do is it's really quite beautiful they release these tiny little bundles that are bright pink little balls and so it's like an underwater snowstorm of pink that's just floating up and then what happens is the worms will spawn as well so the rest of the reef also has different animals on the reef have realized that if we join in and we spawn all at the same time then the predators might eat some of the spawn but a lot of it's going to survive so it's safety in numbers so you have things like the starfish will, will sort of stand up on all their arms and they will spawn and the the sea cucumbers that are the long sort of sausage looking things on the bottom they will stand upright and they will spawn and then you have worms that are in the water column and they'll spawn and they spawn in bioluminescence so it's like fireworks are underwater with these tiny pink little balls everywhere it's just the most spectacular thing that you can imagine seeing what is it that you love about the reef and you took us out today snorkeling and you were pointing out all the baby corals you were showing us where corals are thriving which fish were where what they did you showed me a fish with a moustache of algae yes <laughs> <laughs> like imagine if you drank your milkshake and it was all over your face 
That was that fish. That's exactly right. And that, <laughs> that was a parrotfish and a beautiful rainbow-coloured parrotfish. And what they're doing, they are basically biting the coral, but they're eating the algae off the coral. What is it, though, that delights you? Because you obviously, this is your backyard, this is where you work, this is your obsession. I've always been a really curious soul. And I started asking questions about garden snails in my backyard in Melbourne. And I wanted to know everything about them. When I found the Great Barrier Reef, every time I find a new answer to a question, a hundred more questions come. There's just so much to it and so much to learn about it. Could you give us a summary of some of the threats to the reef? Obviously, climate change is the big one, big, big, big one. But water quality. So corals need a few things to grow and survive and they need access to sunlight, they need clear water and they need to be in a warm environment within a certain temperature range. And so the clarity of that water and the quality of that water is critical for corals. What might affect it negatively then? So obviously cyclones and extreme weather events up here. Absolutely. Connectivity is a word that you can't sort of say enough about these systems. This system here is connected to the land, which you saw we we took an hour and a half boat trip out here. This is connected to that land, that water. And so the water running off land through rivers, what people are putting in their drains at home, what chemicals are being used on farms, all of those sorts of things are all making their way into the reef. So linked to that is these coral-eating animals called crown of thorn starfish. And you would have today gone to see and, and heard about the guys that are actually controlling those. What they actually have to do is control them one by one. So there are five boats that work on across the whole reef. Yes. They do a number of things. So they monitor the reef and they provide us with information on an enormous scale now. They count, they look for scars of these crown of thorn starfish. Where they've basically eaten where the coral. Where they've eaten the coral and then they'll be white there. So they find those and then they inject them one by one manually. They're in there, they put an injection of ox bile or salt basically and they fill them up with that and on they go. And then they basically just sort of dissolve. What I learned today was that one of these starfish can grow to be quite large. I mean, up to what? Yeah, well, they have found some that a have meter. been, yeah, a metre in size. So they can get huge. But in general, they're about, the base of them without the arms, about a dinner plate yep. size. But that creature can eat coral the same size as its body in a day. Yes. So that's crazy. We were told that at one point there were 30,000 of them in a recent plague proportioned and um, the Australian Institute of Marine Sciences long-term monitoring program identified that prior to the 2016 bleaching event the biggest cause of coral loss on the Great Barrier Reef was due to crown of thorn starfish and cyclones so being able to help build the resilience of the reef by addressing the things we can manage with man hours is the best thing that we can do at the moment. It's a highly successful program and I've witnessed it with my own eyes, having been on diving these reefs and on these reefs for nearly 20 years. This was pre-Crown of Thorn Starfish Control and I used to go to sites and go, what happened here? And it would have been that, as you said, a plague of these, you know, an enormous amount of these Crown of Thorn Starfish are just relentless feeders. Okay, where do you think hope lies for this reef? Before, you took me snorkelling and you were pointing out baby corals. You could see them very clearly. Yes. Little bright spots of colour, bright blue, bright purple, bright green, where the corals regenerated in a couple of years. But for me, what's scary is that we don't know when another extreme weather event will hit or when another bleaching might happen, and that's out of our control. Actually, it's funny because hope lies for me in humanity. I believe in humanity and I believe in people and I believe that people fundamentally at their core care about natural areas, even if they've areas they're never going to experience. And I believe that places like the Great Barrier Reef make planet Earth worth living on. And if there was ever a reason to change little things that each person can change about their lives, it's worth doing it for the places like what you just saw today. So my hope lies in humanity and, and I think we can make a difference with how regular these extreme events happen by addressing our global carbon emissions and and it's things that people don't want to hear but I believe there is hope and people ask me this a lot and it's because I love humans and I believe in humans. Now this is Dave Suggett, one of the coral scientists working to make the Great Barrier Reef more resilient. I'm an associate professor and I lead the Future Reefs program at the University of Technology Sydney where we develop tools and technologies to health check reefs and diagnose how our environment and climate is changing the health of reefs. 
I moved to Australia six years ago, but before then, probably about 10 years, working in Seychelles, Brazil, Indonesia, lots of really horrible locations. (laughs) Poor thing. (laughs) Don't feel sorry for me. Now, I want to just throw this term out there because I had not heard it until I was prepping for this trip, and it is coral gardening. What is it? Well, it's as it is on the packet. Really, it's taking very similar principles from gardening in your own home. Really, it's about cultivating and propagating coral. The reason we can do that is because coral has solved how to reproduce in lots of ways. Okay, so let's just rattle them off for people who don't know. Well, there's the obvious ones. They get together, egg, sperm. Mixed together, new coral babies. The spawning. The spawning. That's why we're here at the moment, is for the mass spawn. But really what corals do day in, day out, because the mass spawn only happens once every year, but day in, day out, they break parts of themselves off and they propagate. And they're actually designed to do that. It's nature's way of spreading the populations. Corals are animals, but when we think about propagation, we think about plants. Yeah, absolutely. And corals are plants, they're animals, they're rocks, they're a bit of everything. Well, you said before you asked your students, are we animal, vegetable or mineral when exactly. we talk about corals? Yes. And what's the answer? Uh, all of them. How come? Corals are all of them. Yeah, so corals, and they're predominantly an animal that has evolved a symbiotic relationship with a little alga. And then all of the energy that the alga gives the host enables it to grow a calcium carbonate, a chalk skeleton. Um, and it's that chalk skeleton that makes our reefs. So why might we try to garden? Well, we try to garden because we've lost so much coral biomass. The good news is that in all of our reefs, we have enough coral left so that we can start fragmenting it on and and really fast-tracking natural processes. And that's the most important thing to remember here is that we're simply taking a way in which corals have designed to reproduce and just accelerating it. Now, that sounds fantastic. Why would anyone oppose this? Because it's not without controversy. Yeah, no, that's a really fair question. And to put it into context, it started in the Caribbean about 10 years ago because of a a really catastrophic disease that nearly pushed one of their only uh, really charismatic corals to the brink of extinction. And so to garden... Charismatic in a sort of anthropomorphic sense, (laughs) as in you just think they look great, have great hair. If you're into corals, it's very... No, so what are corals give a reef. The key thing about corals is complexity, architectural complexity. If they grow in really, really complex shapes, they can harbour more species. So the Caribbean has very few coral species that grow in complex forms. And one of the the species that acquired this disease 10 years ago is really the master architect of the reefs. So if it wasn't saved, Caribbean reefs were in big trouble. So really, scientists, conservationists turn to gardening this one species very quickly. So, you know, it wasn't really a high-risk scenario in that sense because it was, it, was, anyway. it was it was going to go. It was one species and they were trying to put the species back in. And this is where we've had to really look carefully on the Great Barrier Reef because we have 600 species of coral. The question is, which ones do we grow? Which ones do we propagate? And do you know what? We don't actually know the answer to that. But hang on, I asked you why it might be controversial. Why would anyone oppose it if it seems to be a good way to be able to make sure that some species do survive and thrive? Absolutely. So I guess the controversy is if you gardened just, say, one or two species and you really boosted the abundance of just one or two species at the expense of others, you're going to tip the ecosystem even further into catastrophic decline. So where our researchers come in has really said, what's the best balance of species? How many should we propagate? How do we plant them out? What's the success? And to do this, we've had to engage with all of the tour operators on the Great Barrier Reef to say, well, you guys are there every day. You work across lots of different reef sites. You have lots of different species. Let's start some experiments and let's try and find the answer before we develop this into a full-blown management tool. So you're doing it at a small scale at the moment, trying to figure out how to do it. Just back on that gardening thing, Mm -hmm. there is this idea that we shouldn't mess with nature, although obviously everything we do as a human species messes with nature. But I was just doing a bit of research about where does the origins of the term garden come from and what's gardening really mean? And then I, I stumbled on this quote from an American gardener called Benjamin Voigt. And he says, here's the thing, designing a garden by its very definition is an act against nature. A garden manipulates and contorts nature through the filter of our culture cultural and imaginative biases and he's talking about what we do in absolutely you know kind of taming nature into Uh this green very colonial um, Mm -hmm. maybe parks let's say 
can we apply that thinking to what we do in the ocean or is it just moot? Uh, no, I think we have to. I think the thing to remember again is coral gardening is not going to return a rainforest. That's the analogy, I guess, to respond to that. So coral gardening is there as a means to make sure we have enough biomass. And if we're strategic, if we do it in the right locations and at the right reefs, then it does have a role. It's just not a solution to the entire reef. All right, tell us about how you do it. It's as simple as we identify the colonies of interest and we uh, snip little propagules off. We will either then place them into nurseries to grow on so that we can make new adults. We can make new adults very, very quickly if they're in the right place. But really the solution we've come up with is a brand new product. It's a, a little clip that enables us to clip these fragments back onto the reef in just a few seconds. And I asked you before, I said, I hope it's not plastic. And you and said... It's not plastic. It's a spring form metal clip and the metal corrodes over time and, and just disappears. And you can actually then pick up the fragments that have broken away either from weather or from natural causes or being kicked away or fish have pushed them off Mm -hmm. and actually then reattach them. That's right, absolutely. And the trick with the clip is just to hold the fragments on long enough so that the natural glue of the coral then sticks it onto the reef. So it needs about three or four months. And we have, in the space of about eight weeks, planted about, cumulatively over eight weeks, about 10,000 corals already at one site. And this has just been transformative because until this product existed, over eight weeks we'd have been lucky to maybe plant a few hundred. Amazing. So it's a game changer, but not just for us as scientists, but for those living and breathing on the reef. In terms of really boosting the coral abundance back to where it was, if we want to make sure corals can withstand future stress events, we need to make sure those that we plant out are stress resistant. So we're developing new tools to screen populations to find signatures of stress resistance. Which ones are tougher? Yeah, which ones like are which, tougher? Which individual guys are tougher? Well, do you know... Do you like my layperson speak where I've I, made them into blokes? I love it. I, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> who's doing clearly, the heavy lifting? Clear who's the scientist here. <laughs> so if you look at any one species, actually, we know that there's lots of genetic variants. There's some are tough, some are not so tough. And actually a reef needs a bit of both because when the going is normal, actually it's the less tough ones that do all the growing. But then as soon as there's a stress event, you need some of the real toughies there to really withstand and keep a foothold for that species. So in terms of improving the overall quality of the reef, that being kind of North Star, what what you want? What are some of the methods that you can use apart from gardening? The other methods that we're looking at is really boosting the age at which we can boost corals to sexually reproduce. And then also helping their larvae to survive better. So we know that... You talked about taking them out of nature for a period of time. Yeah, a very, very short space of time. So they don't get eaten. Yeah, so the idea with a mass spawn, this is how corals have evolved to be so successful, is they produce billions and billions of eggs and sperm and just hope enough get through the biological filter of predation. And so what we do is try and remove them from the predators for a short space of time, but then also give them a bit of extra juice. We give them some symbionts for free. Normally they wouldn't encounter their symbionts until they settle into new baby corals. I spoke to Katie Chartrand, a researcher from James Cook University, on her boat Aruna as the sun set on the night of the spawning. It is spectacular out here. We're on Aruna uh, here at Moore Reef. And we're here because we're doing something pretty spectacular tonight. It is hopefully coral spawning night. And it is the night of the year that the corals will be releasing their next generation. So the egg and sperm bundles are going to be released into the water column tonight uh, for us to capture and harness to use in a large scale uh, larval restoration project. If we leave Mother Nature to its own devices, it's estimated that one in a million baby corals actually grown into a full-blown adult. So it's time for us to look at intervening to increase those odds. Because of the rate of change and degradation on the reef due to things like climate change, we need to get out there and start acting. The coral cover is declining significantly. There are still substantial areas that are beautiful and pristine, and we're at one of those patches. And we're relying on that tonight to now harness those spawn to ensure we can settle these new babies back out into the areas hit hardest. You also talked about helping the algae reach the coral. That's another part of the work, right? That's right. So there's something missing in the equation for larvae. They don't have that really important symbiotic algae yet in their tissues, which gives our coral reefs its beautiful color and which also feeds these corals. It's their energy source. And so in those early days when these corals are settling, they're really 
taxing in terms of that settlement process. We need to make sure that they have the energy to get through this process. So we're giving them a boost. It's really like a little baby battery pack to ensure they can get through and survive into the future. But the science behind this is really interesting. Before we started recording, you were saying that it's also been work around trying to figure out which algae are more resilient, for example, to high temperatures. And so in essence, which food would be the greatest food to give these baby corals? Yeah, there's been science going on for many years looking at that symbiotic algae community and looking at the different species. And now we understand a bit more about their physiology and how they act and how that combination with different coral animals creates uh, more resilient colonies compared to others. So we can now grow up specific strains or species of algae in the lab. And that's what we're doing out here as part of this project. You've done it in the lab until now. I mean, this is the moment really, right? Because you're out there in open ocean trying to see if it's actually going to work and take in nature. That's right. So we've done trials getting these little larvae to uptake this algae during this development process, which has shown that they have a boost of survivorship. But the first time to be trialed on the reef is this year. So it's a really big momentous occasion for us. Are you nervous? I'm nervous in a in a positive way. Excited. I think, in an excited way. I think that the teams that come together in the collaborations and the track record, uh, my colleague, Professor Peter Harrison, has been working for 15 years now on this uh, spawning work, and he's had successes nearly every year. So I think there's the track record we get to rely upon. He's been working in the Philippines as well, is that right? That's right. Yeah, so this work has really stemmed from the work over there, looking at settlement, where they now have corals that have grown to adult size. They're now producing their egg and sperm bundles and releasing those into the water column. There's a few different methods in terms of settling uh, the larvae back on the reef. One is, yes, small scale, improving the science. We need to test it. It has to be controlled. So we we are doing that in terms of the uptake with the algae this year. Other methods include large scale diver seeding. So divers going down and actually pumping these larvae and over large areas. So the idea is is densely putting larval clouds back down on the reef. These little larvae are swimming. They're actively looking when they're fully developed for somewhere to settle. So if we can put them even close to that reef, they're going to find their, you know, forever home, we hope. I ended my adventure talking again with organiser, activist and eco-warrior Andy Ridley about people power and how citizens of the Great Barrier Reef can help change the story. It's um, after midnight on a pontoon. We're on the outer reef and uh, you've just been in some very dark water with some... uh, (laughs) Which is a bit scary, isn't it? Eh? Honestly, the I, first time. I thought that I was not actually going to see it through. When you're given an opportunity to do something bucket listy that involves you leaving your fears at the door, otherwise you are basically a loser missing out on an amazing opportunity, you have to do it. You but do. there was definitely part of me that was thinking, as soon as all the divers went in off the boat, yeah. I looked around, it's pitch black. I thought, I'm going to pull out. It's spawning, so um, everything comes into feed. So, um, but what did you think? Was it what you thought when you went in the water? I went in expecting it to be sort of hectic and frightening. And in fact, there's a strange serenity about yeah, being out around. there in the velvety black. It's oddly calming. So I've been out here many times and hadn't seen the spawning. So this is this kind of, you know, once a year event where the reef essentially has, as our friend Laura puts it, has a massive orgy and um, sort of reef orgasms. And so that happened it happened tonight and we were in the water. Fiona said it's, uh, you've got the future of the reef in your hands. So when you lift the water out, cupped in your hands, and it's full of eggs and all these little animals that are feeding yeah. off it. And she's, I mean, she watched, she was going, life, look at all the life yeah, team in there. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's right? amazing. And you can see it. And, and it's, um, it's a rejuvenating experience, not just for the reef, but for us who work on it. We're building this network of people who are all passionate about the Great Barrier Reef and actually in the longer term reefs all over the world and want to, you know, work together to try and protect and conserve it. The theory is that if you think about what's the 21st century conservation organisation look like, it's going to look really different to one that was built in the 1960s or even, you know, 20 years ago. You've got to work out how can you, in the same way that the shared economy has grown what is the uber version of maybe you know the, a positive sense of that what is the uber version of a conservation organization so how do you create something where you're able to use every asset available to mobilize that's how we thought about it it's like how can anybody and everybody be involved and how do you build infrastructure to do that 
it's that idea that citizen has responsibility. It's not just about signing a petition or putting your name on something. It's actually you've got to do something. So action, but action. also this idea of it being extremely broad and taking it back to the people, if you like. I mean, that's what citizens... Yeah, that's it's what responsibility. We, it's about this... But it's not idea. a top-down thing. No, no, no. It's about the idea that you're actually going to get up and do something. You're going to, you are going to participate and you're not necessarily going to wait to be asked. And it's more than being a, a campaign or a protest. It has to be about, right, what are we going to do and how are we going to do that together? And actually, the thing about citizenship is you're not necessarily waiting to be asked. So that means that you can start something. So the idea across the reef is that this is not a centrally controlled operation. This is the idea that there are lots of people already doing amazing stuff. How do you utilise a group of citizens? You're doing various things, and I know there's lots of projects in the works at the moment, but mm. let's just talk about a couple of them that bring together tech, but also citizen collective action. So this is, uh, the project's called the Great Reef Census, and um, it was inspired by something that was done in Africa called the Great Elephant Census, which is trying to work out what are the populations of elephants in lots of different countries across the continent of Africa. And two years ago, after one of the, the big bleachings, there was this uh, emergency summit in Townsville, and one of the things that sort of came out of that was that a lot of the work that's happening is based on modelling. 40% of the Great Barrier Reef, which, you know, as I said before, is just massive, same size as Germany, really massive, has never been surveyed. This is the size thing, right? Every year there are surveys on certain numbers of reef, but it's less than 100. So where that leaves you is um, short of data. So the scientists would really love to know much, much more, particularly about what they call the key source reefs. These Can you just briefly explain what that means? Yeah, so key source reefs are the ones that are kind of feeding the rest of the reef. So we've seen the spawning tonight. The key source reefs will be full of life. What happens on those when they spawn will go all the way down through the currents onto other reefs. One thing is they're more diverse. There's more different types of coral. Maybe more diverse. Maybe may have super corals on them. May just spawn in a bigger way. Maybe just in the right place where the currents run. Maybe for some reason more protected than others. There's lots of different reasons why they might be key source reefs so currently the reckon is around they've mapped around at 500 based on modeling so it's a scientific mechanism that allows for us to imagine the likely probability of xyz it, exactly and, but and it's, it's not based on exact data it's basically saying according to these trends we predict this yeah exactly so, so it's not they haven't proof. gone out there in a boat and gone key source reef key source reef key source reef so it's a big challenge with the Great Barrier because it's so big. So there's 4,000 reefs officially and maybe as many as 12,000 unofficially. So your idea is? So the idea is to go, right, well, how do you create a billion-dollar research fleet? It's essentially what you need to actually survey the whole thing. Well, actually, we have the boats already. If you look at the... Fishermen. Rec recreational fishers. Or tourists. Tourism boats. Even super yachts coming in and going through the reef. We talked about before the need to really have an army of people doing this. In fact, I hate to use the kind of war analogy, but it was actually mm. one of the scientists here just used it and she said, it's now we're sort of conducting guerrilla warfare. Like we're able to sort of go into certain areas and see what happens. But in order to do it, really, you need massive numbers, like an you army. You need massive numbers. So we need some help. Theoretically, we have the assets to survey the reef, or much of it. So then the question becomes, well, how would we coordinate that many people to help us to survey the reef at a really simple level so what have you done? We've been trying to work out whether you could do it. So we've been working for the last five months on this pilot project. So we worked on the methodology and some people at University of Queensland and the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority have come up with a really simple way where if you've got a GoPro and you go into water. So the brief was from us was it has to be simple enough that if you're a competent snorkeler, you can do it. In other words, if you like get me, a, ha. correct. So um, <laughs> today like, you became a competent of. snorkeler, <laughs> yeah. And uh, it doesn't have to be at night; it definitely has to be in the day. But yeah, so you basically are getting there and taking, getting a kind of a seascape of each reef, and then you're using Google Earth to apply a pin in a map to say where you are. So it's a really, really simple, much simpler than anything that's been yeah, done Yeah, except before. it's not simple for you to pull it off because you've still got to figure out how to store that amount of giant amounts of data in a cloud, how to pay for it, and then how the data is going to be analysed and 
acted upon, right? So it's not that easy. It's obviously hard. That's why I said it was early stages. But it's, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a compelling idea that you would mobilise a citizen army, if you like, in exactly. inverted commas, on behalf of the reef to collect the data that's basically uncollectible without huge resources being thrown at it. So you're using citizen science to collect data on a, on a massive scale? That phrase, I'd never heard it before. And then I, I said to people, obviously there's lots of scientists on this yeah. pontoon. But Everyone I was like, really I'd never, weirdly, yeah, yeah, I was like, what is yeah. this in science? Never heard mm. of it. Everyone's like, really? What? But it ostensibly just means... In most cases, it's citizens collecting data. Mm. And it can be in lots of different ways. So in the case of this, it would be, there would be citizens collecting data through a GoPro on as many reefs as possible. Mm. But actually with the census, the idea is that then people will also analyse it and then you link that into AI and you can improve the AI. So you could analyse it. You didn't have to be on the roof, though. You could be in Amsterdam. Andy, you sound like an Aussie. No. You really do. Your accent is so baked in by your 20 years in this country, and yet you are, in fact, a Brit. I'm from Norwich. I married someone from Townsville. Same, but I maintain my accent. What do you do? No, your accent's really Australian. No, it's not. I bet you if you go back to England, they're all like, haven't you got an Australian accent? What happened to your accent, Claire? Stop it. Am I wrong? Uh, long story short, what are you doing here? Tell us the story of how Andy became a movement builder. I was, I was following a girl. Oh, good. Yeah, and I... It's always love. Yeah, it was, it was a bit of that. But I also, you know, when I was really, really small, always dreamed of going on the Great Barrier Reef. My hero was Jack Cousteau. Jack oh, really? Cousteau. Really? And, um, yeah, As a kid in Norwich, it's an unusual yeah. one. Did you have a book? I've got a wonderful 1970s book. I totally have that book. Do you have it? Because it's I full of great have, pictures. Actually, not only that, but my mum found it not so long ago and sent it to me. I only ended up actually working on the Great Barrier Reef fully every day of my life three years ago. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so for your dream, the eventually. Question. I used to work for the Princess Trust. And then I worked for WWF. And then it started Eartha. Eartha, which um, the first one was 2007. We kind of started it in 2006. It actually had a parent called Future Makers, which didn't work. Good name. Yeah, good name, right? But what we were trying to address was, you know, this is when MySpace was the biggest social media platform in the world, right? If you ever think culture can't change, yeah, there you yeah. go. <laughs> and we were going, I, I wonder if we can use the MySpace thing to start to connect and do campaigning on a much bigger scale. How do we start to get a whole city, which was Sydney, the first one, how do we get a whole city to show how it feels? And how do we do that when we, because I was working for WWF, World Wildlife Fund, how do we do that when, when the challenge is we always talk to the people who already agree with us, 5% at one end, or having a fight with Alan Jones at the other end? Actually, we For don't internationalists, need- Alan Jones is a shock jock, yeah. very far onto the right-wing spectrum, climate change denier. Yeah, irritating. Anyway, so the guys that already are on board, you don't need to convert, right? And having the fight at the other end is meaningless and you'll never change it, right? So it's how do you get that big bulk in the middle? So Earth Hour is like, how do we do something that will engage on a very, very mainstream level people who we've never met? So, I mean, it was all about turn the lights off for an hour. But, you know, we had churches and sports clubs and bands and companies and everyone got involved. And this extraordinary thing happened in Sydney. And I remember I'd given up smoking just before it. I was extremely stressed. But I remember standing on the side of the Botanical Gardens in the harbour in Sydney and just, um, you know, I think we expected the lights to go off in one go. But what actually happened was some of the logos went off on the top of the buildings. Then the old building went off and then the bridge went off and then the opera house went off. And we were like, the harbour looked, it was bathed in moonlight and it was, it was sort of Batman-esque. And so the realisation was that, you know, a million plus people across that city. Two million people in yeah. the first time. But yeah. then, you know. Then it got big. Yeah, 152 countries after yeah, that. Yeah, well, it's, it got to 180 or something, 7,000 plus cities. And so what I think, and this comes back to what we're trying to do with citizens, is how do you then take all the lessons we took from that and design a 21st century conservation organisation? Because it can be really different from one that would have been designed in the 1960s. So that's, in a way, you've got the opportunity to connect digitally in a way that's not been done before. You can use every asset if you can connect them. So that could be a tourism operator. In the case of the reef, it could be a tourism operator, it could be a research boat, etc. What did it achieve? You turn the lights off for an hour... Yeah. Big deal. Well, certainly at the time, and this is pre the um, GFC, at the time it was like people like, oh, okay, that's impactful in terms of people. At the time, you know, people looked at it. I think the police definitely looked at it and went, oh, okay, that's impressive. Well, it's a visual statement of community and 
mass action. Yeah. But what does it actually do? So an hour of the lights off doesn't do anything from an environmental perspective. And at the time, we sort of started to think, oh, well, do we use that argument of how much energy is being saved? And it was used. We didn't. I wasn't happy with it. But what actually the outcome from it was that we started to build a global network of people who wanted to do things. And then what we started to realize is they started to share how they were doing stuff. So in the last year that I was running, I ran it for eight years, the last year that I ran it, out of the top five conservation outcomes globally for WWF, three of them had been driven by this Earth Act community. So it was things like 4.6% of the uh, territorial waters of Argentina were put into uh, marine parks. And it was an Earth Act campaign. Because it's sparking awareness. Is that really Not just what that, it gave people a, an umbrella brand or organisation in which what they were doing could sit underneath. And therefore, the, the, the power of the voice becomes much, much bigger because you're part of something global. So you had campaigns talking in Argentina with campaigns talking in Russia. We used a, a system at the time called Yammer, which was sort of the Facebook for business, to connect all these different teams. So we kind of got out of the way. And amazing stuff started to happen. Things are very different to the how they were in 2007, but we talked before about how that seemed to be a high point of environmentalism kicking off. Globally, you had Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth. Still you had the Vanity Fair green issue with like every celebrity you could think wearing green, talking mm. about the earth. Where are we at now? I mean, what, what happened? Well, I think the GFC happened. Financial crisis happened. I think that the movement, that kind of, that high point didn't have enough foundation. The infrastructure wasn't there. So there's a, there's a lot you can take from it. I think, um, you know, COP15 in 2009 was pretty disastrous for multiple reasons, uh, the economic crisis being the biggest one of them. But it's arc of history stuff. So, you know, we are moving on again, but I feel like now we have to be very much in the practical implementation zone, know more about, like, hope is important. But practical is really key now. A decade ago, we proved that you could network globally. That's lights off for an hour, right? The technology, the capacity to connect in a way that no other generation has ever had is now with us. The ability to share data, get data is now extraordinary and will get even more uh, impactful over the next two, three years as AI kicks in, etc. So the engineering, the foundation, the networking, is the logistics of doing this is completely possible already. What we're trying to do with the Citizens Project is do that from a conservation perspective on one reef. But everything we build, everything we design is designed to be scaled. So you could do it on the Mesoamerican reefs, you could do it in the Coral Triangle. Without being hopefully not too confusing, we are in a different age now. We can do things differently and it doesn't have to be about, you know, when you get asked that question, what can I do? We need to come up with a better answer than the Keep Cup. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm curious still. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you